Well, good morning. Would you just uh, thank our worship team for their excellent work this week in preparing? And we really are blessed to have so much musical talent, but above and beyond that, to have a, um, a group of worshipers who will lead us in worship and uh, to do so in such a way that the music doesn't get in the way. Amen. Uh, let's pray, and uh, then we're going to dive into John chapter 12. We've got a, uh, got a good one this morning. I'm looking forward to preaching through this. So let's pray, and as always, ask for the Lord's help, and make sure that we uh, um, know what we're doing this morning, and to understand that the worship continues as we study His Word. So let's commit ourselves to that. Father, thank you for uh, the beauty of the morning. Uh, boy, when summer gets here in Alaska, we, we like it. Uh, we could have used a little more of it <laughs> this year, but... We're thankful for what we have, and uh, we are thankful for the light which gives life and energy and vitality to us, and we're grateful to look around and see the beauty of this creation. And That says something about you, Lord, because you did not need to make this a beautiful world. You could have made it just a practical world, but you blessed us in a very generous way by giving us beauty to behold, and we know that it, it tells us something of you. So we thank you for that. And God, as we turn to your word and we see a beautiful picture of others who worship you and honor you with generosity, God, may it prick our hearts and may it cause us to respond in kind. So we ask for your help as we study. We know that it is not purely a mental exercise, but a spiritual one, and we need the help of your Holy Spirit. So we ask for you to illuminate this text to us. We ask for courage, too, to look at each of our own lives and our hearts, to examine them, and to make correction where necessary. So we give ourselves to you as another act of worship in studying your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to John 12, and you have a handout uh, this morning that... You know, I was looking over this as I was talking with Rob, and you know, every Sunday morning she comes in and she punches all of this in in the, uh, in the slides so that you can follow along and you don't doze off as I drone on and on. So she helps you all. And I was looking at it this morning, though, and I thought, boy, you're getting quite a value this morning, huh? Look at all the content on the front and back. I'm going to make sure you get your money's worth here. So, uh, but keep that out as, as we go through. I think that will, will help you. Uh, And I want you to think about, as you're getting uh, to your Bible there in John chapter 12, what's your favorite dinner party that you've been uh, privileged to be a part of? Maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was fairly recent, but what's, if you can think of sort of a dinner party where it was just very rich and full of life and enjoyable, I want you to try to imagine that in your mind. Uh, I was thinking about that this week. Three of them came to mind to me. First, the first one that came very quickly to mind was, uh, was on the day of our, our wedding. And uh, after the wedding was over, Amy and I stayed at a bed and breakfast in town at, called Birchfield Manor in Yakima, Washington. And they had this, um, uh, they have an incredible sh- a chef there who does French cuisine. And so we had this, this meal after the wedding that was phenomenal. And I remember taking, a, I mean, first of all, it was just a rich day. It was a great day of celebration. I'm sitting there with my new bride and we're having a dinner together for the first time as husband and wife. Pretty cool. And I took a bite and, into the dish that I had and I thought, all of the food that I've had till now, <laughs> you know, it was not food. This, this guy, this chef 
was a magician, you know. It's like we're all doing math and he's doing chemistry, you know. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, so that was one that came to mind. And then another one that comes to mind for me is, is our staff Christmas parties. Boy, they're just great. You know, here I get some of the nearest and dearest people to me in my life and we get together for a Christmas party and Pastor Keith uh, usually makes us a prime rib. And then for those who are not uh, red meat eaters, he roasts a chicken. I know this is brutal to talk with, with such food on, you know, while you're sitting here without the ability to respond to that. But, and then everybody sort of brings their, their specialty and, and we just have this great time together as a staff and we work hard together all year and this is the time we just get to be together and enjoy one another and have a good meal. Um, and then another one that, that came quickly to mind was a dinner that I had in Ethiopia. We were back with our Meet the Needy team and uh, this was several years ago. I think it was in... I think it was in 2006, and um, we were invited over to the royal family's house, or relatives of the royal family. So here we are going to this interesting house with these very interesting people, and um, our dear friend Tadasa, who lived in Ethiopia at the time, was going to be there, and we got to have dinner with him. And there was another couple there that had just uh, the sort of the a uh, couple days before who had just ad- adopted a couple of kids, and so they were there, and it was just I don't know there was this richness of of cultures and important people and new people and uh, lots of fun things. It was just a special dinner, and so it stands out in my mind. And um, today we get to look at a dinner scene that's very special in the scriptures, and it's not the Last Supper, but it could be called the Second to Last Supper, and that's what I've titled it this morning. Um, it's just a couple of nights before the betrayal of Jesus. But the tone and the mood of this supper is celebration. And it's really a beautiful scene. Uh, sort of contextually in our study through the, uh, the Gospel of John here, the rejection of Christ has been very clear throughout the Gospel up to this point. Even after the feeding of the 5,000, healing of the blind, uh, raising of the dead. <laughs> Amazingly, there is still a sense of rejection in the gospel and it comes up again and again and and we we continue to find words and phrases in the scriptures that say something like and the people were divided right some believed but the religious leaders tried to kill him all the more and it 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 almost seems that up to this point we've seen more rejection of Christ than we have seen acceptance of him as we go through the gospel of John and it's almost as though the apostle John has been illustrating his his uh, earlier comment in the first chapter, verses 10 and 11, where he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so then we just get scene after scene and conversation after conversation where this is sort of illustrated. But here in chapter 12, we get a reprieve from the rejection of Christ. And instead we find this beautiful scene, a group of people who are receptive to Jesus and rejoicing in who he is, and they take the time to honor him. And so we're granted access into this dinner party as sort of VIP guests. We get to see uh, what is happening here and how Jesus is honored. We get to see how some of his early followers express their love and their care and devotion to him. And so against all of the controversy that had been surrounding Christ at this point, We get a break and an invitation to see the affection of those who honored Christ. And so my goal this morning is very simple. As we we look at sort of two stories here 
as we look at this dinner in Bethany and we look at the triumphal entry, we're going to be sort of presented with a question, and that is this. If Jesus is my Savior, and if he is my King, then how is my life devoted to honoring him? And so I want these two, these two stories, these two pictures to just kind of wash over you and to surface that question. And as, and as we reflect on it, I hope that, that you will come to a good answer uh, as to how you're doing this. So first of all, one of the first ways we see Christ honored in this passage is that he is honored through service. Look at verses 1 and 2 of John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And so the first thing we see here, there's this dinner scene, and Jesus is the guest of honor, and the invitation lists include those who are supportive of him. Uh, And though it's not told to us here, we know from the other gospel accounts, particularly Matthew 26 and Luke 14, that there were many other disciples at this dinner. Uh, Later in the gospel, in in verse 9 here of John 12, we find out that there's a large crowd of of Jews that had come up from Jerusalem too to kind of uh, be a part of this event. And it seems that the raising of Lazarus, raising the dead, had kind of gotten people talking, as it should. And, And people want to come out and and uh, be a part of this scene here. Um, and again, it's a remarkable dinner scene. And, and, and I think, I'm going to make a bold statement here. But aside from the Lord's Supper, th- this may be the best dinner party ever. I'll just throw it out there for argument, for sake of argument. Consider the guest list. You have the disciples of Jesus. These men that love him dearly, that have followed him. Uh, for three years, and, and if, you do anything with a, if you do anything with a group of people for a number of years, you start getting your inside stories, your teasing, your experiences, and imagine the stories they get to tell. You know, these, many of these guys fish together. Um, I, I've been fishing one time with Pastor Keith, and I come away with a story, you know. We were out dip netting with Pastor uh, Maury from community out in North Pole. We went down to... Uh, Kenai and he and I were dip netting together and he was a lot clumsier than I would think a commercial fisherman ought to be. <laughs> he, he actually whacked Maury on the head with the pole, that he, the dip netting pole. And I, I, I was pretty clumsy myself, but I didn't hit anybody on the head. And, um, but these disciples, with all of the time that they had together, imagine the stories they would have had, the things that they had seen, that they got to reflect on and cherish together. So they're there. And then, this is really interesting, but the house that it's held at, we're told from the scriptures, again, if you look at the Matthew account as well, we're told that this is, the party was held at the house of Simon the leper. Just think about that for a moment. How does that appear on an invitation? You're invited to a party to honor our, you know, our Lord Jesus. It's going to be held at Simon the leper's house. You know, this is a BYOHS. Bring your own hand sanitizer. <laughs> We're going to. But in actuality, very likely, Simon was one who had been healed of leprosy. And so you have these close disciples who are affection of Jesus. You have Simon the leper, no doubt, who had been healed, who is hosting this thing. And then, according to the Gospel of John, Martha is the one preparing the meal. 
Martha. And let's face it, she's the Martha Stewart of the first century, right? That's who she is. I'm sure the preparations were amazing. Uh, I remember, uh, I mean, I could honor lots of people in our church for uh, their specialties and the things that they do well, but uh, I remember, and I can't even remember what the event was, but a while back, a couple of years ago, Sharina Anderson, our administrative, uh, our office manager here, had made, do you remember this, a tray of penguins? How many of you remember this? These little olive penguins, you know what I'm talking about. A whole tray of them. And she put a lot of care into the, making these fun little hors d'oeuvres. I remember Gus was just over at the table with his fingers here and there about eye level, and he was just looking at this little world of penguins. I, I can't remember. What is a group of, is it a rook? A rook of penguins? I don't remember. But So Martha's preparing the meal. What, what sort of specialty did she bring to this, this dinner to honor Jesus, whom she loved, who had raised her beloved brother from the dead? Uh, I submit that it was a rich meal and well-prepared. And then you have on the guest list Lazarus, back from the dead. It speaks for itself. And on top of that, you have Jesus here as well. Talk about an interesting guest list and a celebration. And so we have this sort of this beautiful picture that we're invited into here. And we have a great picture, too, of Martha, who in this particular scene is serving gladly. Now, contrast this from the earlier story of Martha, which isn't actually included in the Gospel of John. But in the earlier story of Martha, where, she's, where we run into her, she's serving. And whenever we find Martha, she's using her gifts of hospitality and service. That's what she does. But in the previous scene, she was bothered that her sister Mary is not helping with the tasks and the chores that her her sister Mary is just listening to Jesus. And so in the past, she definitely served, but she did so grudgingly. And I don't want to make out a mountain out of a molehill here, but I see in this scene a different spirit in Martha. She seems to be serving in a much more contented fashion. In fact, we're kind of given these words in the scene that she served while what? Lazarus reclined at the table. And you're almost given this foreboding, you know, uh oh. <laughs> He's about to get a finger wagging here, but um, he doesn't. Um, so we almost expect her to say something, and she doesn't complain. It seems as though she has learned how to use her gifting without grumbling. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. God has empowered each and every person in this room with a spiritual gift with something that they are entrusted with to bless the body of Christ and to edify the body of Christ. And nobody has all of them, and we need one another's gifts to be whole and to be uh, mature. We need the inter interdependence of the body of Christ. It is the way God has designed things. But very often we can use our gifts in ways that can be hurtful. Instead of helping people, we can be critical in the areas of our gifting. Uh, in other words, uh, I, you, know, you, you may have a particular gift that God has given you. It's a strength of yours. But instead of using it in, in a servant-hearted way, you can be critical of those who, who don't sort of match your level of gifting. And Martha certainly exhibited that in the earlier story, but here she seems to have gotten past it. And she is clearly serving the Lord generously here. Uh, now, we might kind of look at this and go, well, of course, that would be easy to do. If Jesus were here, I could use my gifting and my, 
strengths with, uh, without reservation, without any criticalness or without any grumbling or anything like that. It would be easy if I knew I were serving Jesus. But in a very real sense, when we serve one another, we are serving Christ. We are vicariously serving Christ, and he tells us as much. In Matthew 25, 40, it says this, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. As we serve one another, we are serving and honoring Christ. And so that's an invitation that we're given here. We're given permission and even a command to do so. And so as I, as I sort of prompt you with that question again, if Jesus is my king and my savior, then how am I honoring him? And one of the ways that we do that is by serving one another in the body of Christ. Uh, my folks are up this week, and invariably when they come up, they get a glimpse of you all because you're in our lives. And they get to see all of the ways that you generously care for us and the way that we live life together uh, and I know it's conspicuous and it stands out. And I want to bless you all for that and just honor you for that. I'm really proud of you and really uh, deeply encouraged uh, by the way that you exercise community as the body of Christ. And we're recipients of that and it's conspicuous to those who visit. One of the ways that you honor the king is by serving those he loves and serving the body of Christ. You vicariously honor him. And so we see Martha is serving gladly here. So one of the other ways that Jesus is honored, he is honored through sacrifice. Look at verses 3 through 11 here. And as, before we read those, I want you just to think with me. The mood is probably at this party very festive, right? We can imagine. Lots of celebration, food and drinks, stories flowing. Hey, Lazarus, what's it like to be dead? You know. Hey, Simon the leper, did you wash your hands before you brought the rolls? You know, you could just, you could just kind of get a sense for this if you use your imagination. And at the very least, even if all of that's not happening, these people are aware that they're having dinner with the Messiah, the Son of God, their Savior, at the very least. The one who raises the dead. If the death of Lazarus that we talked about last week, if his death and the pain that was being experienced by everybody troubled Jesus when he saw it to the point that he wept, how much, how much more happy, how much more joy does he receive in this moment, right? When he sees people interacting as they were intended to, when he sees the beauty of this scene, when he sees life as it should be, you would think this would be a sweet moment. But I can't help but to wonder if in the back of Jesus' mind, while he's certainly enjoying all of this, there must be the heaviness of the cross too. Um, the cross did not surprise him. He knew he was heading directly towards it. In fact, in the Matthew account of this same story in chapter 26, 2, it says this, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He makes that statement at this dinner scene. John doesn't record it here, but Matthew did. And it's interesting, it's almost as though nobody paid attention to it. It's, it doesn't seem seemingly get addressed. It's almost like they didn't hear or didn't understand or they didn't know how to respond, but it doesn't seem like it's on anybody else's mind. Uh, again, the statement isn't even recorded in John's account here. But it seems to me that one person did respond. It seems to me that one person did hear what he said. Now, I can't prove this. 
But Mary's response, what we see Mary do here, I believe was a direct response to Jesus' statement. I may be wrong about that. But it seems to me that when Jesus said, hey, it's, it's about time for me to be handed over and crucified, I, I get the sense that she thought, well, then I'm not waiting until you're dead to honor you. I'm going to honor the living while I'm present with you. And so it seems to me that this next action that she, that she does here is in response to his statement. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So many things we could look at here, but I want to look at Mary's gift. First of all, let's just say Mary's gift was generous, yeah? Let me draw out some of the ways of the, some of the generosity that I see in her gift. First of all, I think her first act of generosity was that she listened to Jesus, Uh, In today's day and age, it seems to me that everybody's talking. I wonder who's listening, you know. The the, the Facebook, uh, always, Facebook cracks me up. Um, And I'm there too, you know, we're all there. The selfies, the pictures, the I'm doing this, the guess what, you know, all the trivial information that we think the world is interested in that we just did, you know what I mean? We're all talking, we're we're all saying something, we're all showing something. Who's listening, (laughs) you know? And if you wanted to be a very, very kind friend, you would be a good listener. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give those that you love. And I think one of Mary's first gifts of generosity is that she listened to Jesus. She knew the moment, she knew the occasion, and I believe she heard his words when he said, I'm about to be crucified. And I believe that directed her action here. And she's not going to wait for his death to honor him. It's also this this gift is generous because of the value of it, just pure and simple on monetary terms. We're told that it was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was a small silver coin that represented a day's wages. So here what we have are 300 days wages. Can you imagine pouring out your salary, your year's income in a moment? Uh, think about it. What's your yearly income? Pick a moment and pour it out in an act of generosity. That's what she did here. Um, I also think it's interesting because here she is pouring out these 300, you know, uh, uh, this, this perfume that's valued at 300 denarii while, while almost consecutively here Judas is going to go out and turn Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. 
She's giving up a year's wages. He's taking in maybe a month's wages to betray Jesus. It's an interesting contrast. It's also generous because of the sacrifice. Again, in the Matthew and Mark accounts, we're told that this perfume was contained in an alabaster jar, which in and of itself was very valuable. And in order to pour it out, it had to be broken. And even the words, so even the words broken and poured out almost seem to foreshadow what Christ is about to do. That his body would be broken and that he would be poured out for us. Um, but once she breaks this, this alabaster jar and the contents poured out, they're gone. There's no retrieval. There's no, do you know what I mean? It's gone. It's all gone. It's given. No strings attached. It's generous because of the sacrifice. Then there, there's another piece that stands out to me. It seems generous, and I don't know how to say this, but almost because of the stigma attached here. This is an incredible, almost embarrassing moment of intimacy. Uh, we're told that she, she wipes his feet with her hair. Um, when I kiss my wife, I can feel her hair brush up against me, right? Or I'm cuddling with my daughter. Sometimes her long red hair gets caught in my beard and sort of combs through it. And I like that. And those are my girls, right? And that's okay when it's my wife and my daughter, but um, I, don't, I don't want some other woman's hair to be touching me. <laughs> so in this particular scene here where this woman lets down her hair, which was unusual in the custom, and wipes perfume, wipes his, his feet with her hair. I, I mean, I think a lot of people in the room went, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is uncomfortable. It was an incredibly sort of intimate, caring act, and it was generous in that sense. And I want to confront us with that a little bit. We're a conservative church. I'm proud of that. Let me say that. We're a conservative church in our theology, which means we conserve. We are conserving to the essential and clear doctrines, right? We're not compromising on those things. We will not. So we're conservative in our theology. We're conservative financially, and that has served this church well. We've been careful with our resources. But may we never be conservative in our worship and honor of Jesus, our Savior. And I think Mary confronts us with that. We're a pretty heady group. Pretty, you know, we're not terribly emotional. We're not terribly, if there's some, a weakness of ours, sometimes it can be maybe our intimacy with the Lord if I can say that. But Mary confronts us, doesn't she, with her tenderness and her devotion to the Lord. One of the commentators said this, and I thought it was really good. Let us seize the opportunities to show our love to him, keeping in mind that whatever our station in life, what we give to the Lord in love must be our best. Isn't that good? Chuck Swindoll, who you know, the pastor's pastor in his book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, uh, has this quote about this particular story. He says, on the basis of this magnificent story, I feel there are times when extravagant gifts are not only appropriate, but are occasionally essential. So are extravagant purchases and extravagant expressions of love, especially if we are determined to live above the level of mediocrity. Extravagant memorials need to be erected. Extravagant art needs to be appreciated. Yes, even extravagant displays of our devotion to the living Lord. 
I believe there are a time, there are times when God, as it were, shouts with a smile, break a vase. And of course, he is referring to this broken alabaster jar where the contents are poured out. And if I had Chuck Swindoll's voice, you would all believe that statement. (laughs) We also see Mary's posture here, which is one of humility. And humility is generous to God. I'll just say that. Um, And we've said it before, even last week. Whenever we find Mary, she is always at Jesus' feet. She is just the principal example of what it is to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. The posture of a disciple is at the feet of Christ. A disciple is one who brings all things to the feet of Christ, whether it's our questions as she did, or our grief as she did, or our treasure as she did. The disciple lives his or her life at the feet of Christ. But here's the funny thing. Nobody oohs and awes over her gift. This beautiful moment. And nobody goes, well done, Mary. Beautiful, thank you, you've taught us all. Nobody says that. She gets booed, okay, in effect. In the Synoptic Gospels, we're told that the disciples complain. But here in John, we're, Judas is singled out as the complainer. And he's feigning interest in the poor, right? This could have been sold, We could have given it to the poor. And of course, what he means is poor old self. (laughs) Poor old me. And so in this this scene, in this, this beautiful scene here at this dinner, we're sort of confronted with two things, both the sweet smell of generosity and the stench of greed in a moment. Uh, It's interesting to me, too, that um, in our first encounter with Mary and Martha, Mary gets in trouble with her sister, right, for not helping. She gets criticized for, for her inactivity. In the second case, this you know, case here, she's basically ridiculed by the disciples and Jesus, Judas primarily because of her extravagant action. Criticized for inaction, criticized for extravagant action. Mary can't win for losing, you know. Except that in both cases, she is exonerated and defended by Jesus. In both cases, she is focusing, what is of up, focusing on what is of utmost importance, and that is Jesus Christ. And he tells her, you've done well. Um, and in fact, in, in Matthew 26, 13, in that account of this story, Jesus says something fascinating. In verse 13, he says, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And now I want to I show you something interesting. Last week, as we met the sisters for the first time in the Gospel of John, uh, John introduces uh, his audience to them, and she identifies Mary to his original audience as the one who had performed or poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her feet, his feet with her hair. In other words, the, the readers... The original readers that John was writing to in his gospel more than 30 years after this event had occurred already knew of her. Such that when he's writing this next story, he just had to refer to her reputation. You remember the woman who did this. So what Jesus had said that her story would be told, we see was in fact true and and demonstrated here. Incredible generosity. 
So we see in this scene, Jesus is honored through service. He's honored through sacrifice. And then this story is interestingly sort of contrasted against uh, what we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry. Now, what's interesting here, and so the third point is Jesus is honored through true worship. What's interesting here is the chronology is off. And, And I want to tell you that this isn't a mistake. It's not that... John wasn't committed primarily to a chronological telling of the story, but oftentimes to a thematic or a theological telling of Jesus' story here. So, in fact, the triumphal entry would have happened on Sunday. This is Tuesday following. So the order is sort of reversed. But I believe what he is doing here is he's taking both events and putting them together and contrasting what happens here. In a dinner scene, we see true worship and sacrifice and service. And then in the triumphal entry, we see... I'll call it pseudo-worship. It's not true worship as it should be. So let's look at this together. Look at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done, uh, that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, now very commonly we paint this scene as, this is great, the triumphal entry. People are honoring Christ. Finally, the public gets it, right? And that's typically kind of how we think about it and how we look at it. And I want to tell you, that's not quite the accurate picture that we should have here. The crowd knows him to be kingly. Let's say that. They recognize this in him, and they proclaim this word, Hosanna. This is an Aramaic expression, which basically says, save us now, right? In other words, the moment of salvation is right here. That sounds good. Save us now. All right. The quotation that they they have just beyond that here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, This is known as the Hallel. It's taken from the Psalms, particularly Psalm 113 through 118. And these were commonly sung around Passover time. Before uh, Israel's exile, these were what we call coronation psalms. In other words, they were songs that were sung when a king would have been uh, sort of anointed or coronated as the king. And so David and Solomon very likely would have, would have heard these. But after Israel's exile, there was no earthly king. And so these particular psalms, which were a part of the liturgy of, his, uh, of, of Israel, were sung not for the moment, but sung for the moment looking forward to when, when God would send the king. They were sort of uh, futuristic and um, eschatological, so to speak. They were looking and waiting for the Lord's Messiah. So when the crowd takes up this chorus of the Hallel here, a song of messianic hope, they do something interesting, which is they insert a word. Uh, in, in the account in Luke, they actually change the psalm from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord 
to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And here in John's account, they insert the phrase, blessed is the king of Israel. In other words, they are saying in every way that they can, the king is here. The one we've been looking for and waiting for is here. But as much as we want, it, we want to say, yes, they finally got it. They, they know who Jesus is. They understand completely. They celebrate him now as their earthly king. We know that this same crowd will later call for his death when they realize he did not come to save them from Rome. The reality is we know they know him to be kingly, but they do not yet know him as the king of kings. In other words, they think they're getting a savior from Rome. But as we know, God was sending a savior from sin. And so they, though they, they honor him as a kingly figure, they do not yet know him as Savior, as the King of Kings. And so as much as we want this to be true worship, it's not. And I actually think what the Apostle John is doing is he's giving us this picture of this dinner scene where we look at Mary and Martha and the folks that are gathered and the way they honor Lord, the Lord in sacrifice and service And he's contrasting it with what is pseudo-worship. Worshiping him, not for who he is, but for who they think he is. But we know Christ to be honored through true worship. And so I want to confront you again with sort of the question that I started with. And, And just to conclude here, I want to ask you to think for a moment. If Jesus is your Savior, and if he is your King, then how are you honoring him? He wants more than lip service. He wants more than Sunday morning praise. He wants more than just a kingly affirmation. He wants your whole lives. He wants every act. He wants every deed. He wants every service and every act of generosity to be for his honor and his glory. He is the king of kings and he is our savior and he deserves that kind of true worship. Let's pray. Lord, I ask now that as each of us thinks about these two scenes and how the Apostle John contrasted them together, I ask that we would be confronted with the beauty of true worship that we see in Mary and Martha and this beautiful dinner scene. And I pray that we would reflect in our lives and ask, how is it that I'm honoring my King? We know you deserve much more than a few songs on Sunday. You deserve much more than easy gifts. You deserve our service. You deserve our sacrifice. You deserve our whole selves. God, may we be confronted again with what it means to truly worship you as the transcendent God of the universe. The one whom we've offended with our sin, but yet by your grace and your mercy, You have stooped low to redeem us and given us a very generous gift in your son, Jesus. May we learn afresh what it means to honor you and to worship you for who you are. So Lord, press past our minds now and grab our hearts. Draw us to you. We want to worship you well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.